Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today we're joined by Fixed Income Portfolio Manager Jeff Moore. Jeff provides his insights on the fixed income markets for the short and long term, what the Fed's latest moves mean for the markets, and what impact the election could have on investors. In regards to the midterm elections, Jeff says if the House flips, it could be a positive for the markets. He says for the market to feel much better, it's going to need to see the Median Services CPI tool cool off. Jeff explains to host Brian Borkowski that the Fed is keeping a close eye on the upcoming CPI numbers. Jeff says that the Fed is focused on the median inflation and mostly if the service sector is warming up. The service sector is important because the bulk of the service sector's cost of goods sold is people. No one wants to get rid of their people right now because it's hard to get them back. Along with the Fed and the upcoming CPI numbers, Jeff also discusses the central bank and inflation and his overall thoughts on the bond market going forward. Today's podcast was recorded on November 8th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So to get started, uh, the FOMC meeting was last week. There was uh, another rate hike as expected. What did you make from the move that the Fed made and and what they said when they were announcing the hike? Well, I think that the key thing for the Federal Reserve is CPI this uh, Thursday. So we have midterms today, CPI on Thursday. And, you know, the Federal Reserve is looking forward enough saying we still have to net tighten. Inflation's still a little bit too too warm. And, and for this Thursday, what you're looking for, Brian, is, is what is the median inflation print look like? So at 8.30 Thursday morning, you're going to wake up and you're going to see, did the median inflation and mostly the service sector, did it warm up again? Because so far, only the good sector is really falling off. Rental car prices, stuff like that. We think housing will fall off at some point with a lag. But really what the Fed's focusing on is that median, that is the service sector still warming up? Because the problem with services is the bulk of the service sector cost, the cost of goods sold for an entity is people. And no one wants to get rid of their people right now because they're hard to get back. We can speak to that later. So I think what you're looking for, you know, in the next couple of days, midterms, if you, if the house flips, that's a positive uh, from markets because that, just like you said, that gridlock. And then on Thursday though, for the market to feel much, much better, it's going to need to see that median services CPI cool off a little. Great. And just before we get into the election, um, I mean, if it cools off, does that then calm the Fed down a bit for future rate hikes? I mean, inflation is probably, the number will probably still be higher than where they want it. Um, so where do you think the, the Fed goes from here based on what could happen on Thursday? Yeah, I think Thursday helps the Fed, especially with line of sight. So let's say the Fed on Thursday morning, we get an uh, either enough sectors cooling off or the services warming is less than it was last month, okay? The Fed can 
basically look forward to June and say, you know, we see a clear path to interest rate or uh, inflation at 4%, let's say by next June. Let's put that out there. And that seems reasonable to our team here, Fidelity, that you could see a path to 4%. Well, if you've already got interest rates over four and you look forward six months, you say, you know what? We actually have interest rates above inflation. That's repressive. That may be enough. And so in that world, the Fed can probably say, hey, we can do our two hikes in December. That's already in price. Maybe we have to tag on a few hikes in 2023. But for the bulk of it, we're kind of done. We're at that peak level. And I think markets will feel better about that because part of what scares markets, Brian, is this idea that if inflation keeps going and if fiscal spending keeps going, we got 10% inflation or 10% interest rates. Nobody wants that. So this will be important Thursday. See that cooling, see line of sight to what I call that 4%. I think things could feel a lot better after that, that, uh, that inflation print. Great. So uh, focusing on today's big events, the, the midterm elections always feels like there's elections in the U.S. Um, uh, what what uh, are you anticipating today and how might markets react to, to what happens? Okay. So the way I, I'm very simple, you know, I grew up in Canada, so you have to look at me as a you know, transplant here. Uh, there's the president, the Senate, the House. No one cares if the Senate flips, right? It can flip, not flip. The Senate by itself can appoint judges. That's pretty much it. Okay. Uh, the president's definitely not going anywhere. So that means the House. I think the market would say if the House flips and you get more gridlock, that would be important. So far, if you look at the last three years, uh, governments, not just in the United States, but in Canada, Germany, you know, Japan, they've spent um, like drunken sailors. Right? It's truly Im impressive. And we spent like SCAD's GDP. And the reason this matters is it was part and parcel of the inflation problem. Like it wasn't just a supply shock, which is, it was that. It wasn't just the interest rates went to zero. It was also this third leg that fiscally, we just went after it, even though there was nobody unemployed. I think that with gridlock, the markets have all, okay, that's one less thing to worry about. It doesn't mean inflation is done for. It just means that you don't have to worry about the Fed raising extra interest rates to offset fiscal stimulus, because this is kind of the balance right now. The more fiscal you do, the more the Fed probably has to raise rates. So the extent you put lockdown on that for a while, maybe a year, that'll make markets feel just, it'll present the markets with a, a better board, so to speak. Great. Um, I got to ask you, uh, what's it like being a bond manager today? And only, it was only, it wasn't long ago that people were now, were sort of saying, we don't even need bonds in a portfolio. Um, you know, the, the, the yields are, are not great. The yields are going to go up. It's going to hurt bond prices, but things have changed over the last little bit. So, so what is it like to be in your position today versus maybe, you know, even a year or two ago? Well, you know, a year ago, you know, the Fed had pinned interest rates at zero and that the 10 year yield in the U.S. 10 year bond, government bond was yielding 1%. And, you know, we were telling clients a year ago, there's no capital gains left in the bond market. So diversify, you know, take, you know, be careful with duration. Be careful not having a big, you know, idiosyncratic event just because you can't get it back. That was a year ago. And then we've had a massive drawdown, which has obviously hurt a lot of clients. And we're not, no one disputes that. But on the flip side, this drawdown has done, turned into nothing but yield. And this yield now is really, really at the point of being attractive. Like if you look at the tactical bond or the multi-sector bond, well over 7% yield and a duration sub five. Like we're now at that point where you go, okay, there's a lot more to like here. And in fact, Brian, I would say 
you know, one of the thought processes I had is if a year ago was a low return, no capital gains environment, where we are today is there are scenarios, even though if I can't point to the exact one, where there's high returns and in excess of that 7% return. And, and for clients, this is a great opportunity. The hard part for clients, though, is they go, well, I've just lost, you know, double digit amounts of my bond portfolio and maybe my stock portfolio. I'm not feeling like taking a lot of risk. Well, how does a client say, go and say, I want to add some risk on the portfolio and when do I do that? And that's kind of our conversation here. And at these yields and with the scenarios that are out there, there's a lot to like in the bond market, even though for the here and now, we can all point to five or six things you go, I don't like those things. With bonds, I mean, you know, even if I guess you're uh, holding on to something that doesn't have as high of a yield, you're still making a return by hanging on to it. I'm just wondering, you know, are, when you're positioned, do you sell and, and kind of trade up or do you hang on? How does it work um, when it comes to just holding these things to maturity? That's an insightful uh, comment. One of the reasons, you know, I personally like to, if I'm going to lose money, I'd rather lose in the bond product than somewhat than something else. Because with bonds, I'm just making a bunch of loans. And like right, we talked about in the past, if I make a loan to someone at 5% for five years, you know what it's worth, 25 points, five times five. You lent them $100, at the end of five years, they owe you 100 bucks back. Now let's say you made that same loan, because we'll do a little math here, but not too much. Uh, let's say you made that same, that 5% loan, and then the next moment the Fed raised rates 100 basis points. So you should have made the loan at 6% for five years. So what happens? Well, you should have made a loan that was worth 30 points. Six times five, but you made one at five times five. Did you lose money? Yes and no. So the bond, that loan at 100, I have to mark that back down to 95. So now you have 25 points, five times five, plus the five points. And now you have a market bond, right? It's got 30 points of upside. That makes sense. Simple math. Now let's say three years go by and, and everything's going well and they pay the coupons. Now, what's the new price of the bond in three years? Well, we actually know this. We don't have to guess. So, let's remember that five times five, that's the loan you made. So, you have 10 points left in your bond, just 10, because three, three years have gone by. The loan you should have made, that's some, nothing changes and interest rates are completely flat, which is not possible, but whatever. Now, the bond is six times two. Should, you should have made a loan at 12 points, but you made one at 10. So, what's happened to your bond? in that three year period. It's gone from 95 to 98, right? Because at maturity, it's going to 100 because you're paying me back or whoever it is is paying back. Did you make money in the oh, three points? No, not really. Did you lose money? Not really. And so the thing about bonds is it's opportunity costs when you make a loan when rates are too low. And so what I do for clients, and you should know this, is when interest rates go up like they did this last uh, year, a lot of the dollar prices fall very much. We just sit in, on those and Put them in our buy and hold. It's not truly a buy and hold, but it's my buy and hold bucket. I'm not going to sell those because as far as I'm concerned, it's the client's money. They're going to get that money back. I just have to wait for maturity. I don't have to do anything. I just have to let time go by and this thing will go up. I can go golfing. And so this is the nice thing. If you're going to lose money, I'd rather lose it in the bond market, um, you know, if you're taking care of defaults. Right. And then you and then, you know, you, you hang on to those. They mature and you put them into a product that has a higher yield. And then there you go. There's, and by the way, a lot of things happen in the bond market over time. Companies come in and tender for bonds. There's a massive tender today with General Electric. Billions. These bonds are below par. They're going to tender for them at, at par. Yeah. Right? It's better than the stock. 
So that's the kind of thing. A lot of good things can happen when you're in the market. And so when they go to those deep distress, even though I've lost you money this year and I'm not happy with that, you know, the fact is nothing broke in the portfolio and it's all sitting there in the portfolio and it's still your money. And I'm not touching it. I'll fool around with stuff that's above par, but below par, I kind of sit in my hands. And, you know, once in a while, we'll, we'll sell something that's below par to buy something else that's below par. Because we, what do we care? Pull the par, pull the par. So you can jump on one horse and get on a fresh horse if you think it's going to do better. But that's kind of where our heads are at. We're not using any leverage in these portfolios. That's another strength. So for clients, you can sleep at night. And so you, you don't like the mark to market. And I, I know you're probably hating talking to your, your clients. They're not liking it. The good news here is once we get to where the Fed is kind of done, CPI print comes back, then the market can start to feel a little bit better about the forward look. And a lot of the stuff in your portfolio can, over time, just do its job again. What, what about the relationship now between stocks and bonds? I mean, you can get a decent yield. You might as well take the less risky asset. You know, that's probably what some people might be thinking. Does the higher yields impact the stock market? How do you kind of see that relationship today? Well, one of the reasons, you know, you know, I, I've heard this story about, oh, bond markets usually negatively correlated stocks. That's not true. And it's never been true. There's very few assets that are negatively correlated. First of all, the idea of wanting to be negatively correlated to the stock market, which over 100 years has done nothing but go up, is kind of insane. <laughs> a low correlation is different, but a negative correlation to the thing that goes up for 100 years in a row, I'm not sure you want to be negatively correlated to that. You won't be an asset class that survives. The bond market is positively correlated to stocks. It always has been, right? Treasuries once in a while can be negatively correlated. They can be the risk on, risk off. But the rest of the bond market, that great bond market, corporates and stuff like that, that's positively correlated. Um, but more than that, when the Federal Reserve's raising rates, 98, you know, a little bit in 2015, 1993, 94, when the Federal Reserve's raising rates, and it's the discount rate, the NPV of everything on earth falls. That's just math. Because the risk-free rate is the Federal Reserve's rate. It's the risk-free rate because the government's decided that the banks which who are 100% of GDP in size, the banks can use it as risk-free so they don't have to have any capital or collateral against it. That's why it's risk-free, right? Because everything goes back to this big, you know, we gerrymandered the system. So government treasuries, government Canada bonds, and US treasuries are risk-free. And that's not changing, not probably in your lifetime, right? In this world, uh, treasuries can be negatively correlated once in a while. But for the here and now, when the Fed's yanking rates up, we're all going for a ride. Uh, great. So let, let's dig into some of the opportunities here. We're actually starting to get some questions in about uh, about different parts of the market. Um, where are you seeing those opportunities? And, and there is, you know, some questions about high yield relative to corporates and sovereigns. Uh, maybe, maybe, yeah. Let let us know where you're kind of looking here. Okay. So overall, yield is fantastic, right? This is as good a yield opportunity as I personally have seen in my career. I've been investing money in Fidelity since May 2000. So this is a great point that entering and, and into the marketplace. Um, where, where would I go? Right now, government yields are very high relative to history, although rightly so given inflation. Again, if we get that inflation back down to 4% and we're at four and a half is the overnight rate, I think we're all gonna feel like that's probably pretty repressive and at some point that four and a half is coming down. So I like government bonds at some point, we're gonna have to go get them and we're gonna have to buy duration at some point. So keep that in the back of your mind that Right now, if you're in floating rate notes or in things that um, don't mark the market very easily, your biggest 
decision is going to be this reinvestment risk. This is front and center. It's not. Um, and so think about that. Maybe not yet your time, but sometime next six months, my opinion, you're probably going to have to make a choice on buying more duration. And I'm running my portfolios very short duration. I have the same question you have. I have to buy duration. I just don't know how yet. Where do I buy? Which sectors do we like? You know, most of the sectors in the market, whether it's high yield, bank loans, emerging markets, uh, investment grade credit, global credit, uh, mortgages, uh, uh, asset-backed securities, CMBS, your gamut, they're trading at the 60 to 80th percentile in terms of spread wides. But they're not at the 100 percentile, which is all-time wides, right? So the good news is they're a lot more attractive than they were last year because they were at the 1 percentile. Now we're at the 60 to the 80th. But they're not distressed. And so this is, again, your challenge. So I think you kind of want to be in the mix, whatever your normal mix is, is kind of my mind. Have your average risk on at least. Um, and at the same time, what we're doing is leaving buckets open just in case something goes bump in the night. Because when you raise rates this fast and this hard and you cut fiscal this fast, you can imagine something gets broken and you want to be able to take advantage of that as a client. So that's where our heads are at. But the yields are so compelling that if you're just saying, okay, high yield, I think defaults are going to be 4.5% next year. If you think that high yield's yielding nine, you're going to way out run 4.5. You've got to go buy a yield. So, so tell me more about that. So, so what are you saying there? So do you think, so defaults you think will rise? Um, so should you take advantage of those high yields? You're saying yes, even if default, even if defaults are going to rise. Those defaults, you've got a great story there. And so this is again for all of us. I'm, so I'm liking credit here, but I'm not coming out of my shoes for it yet, but I am coming out of my shoes for yield. You mentioned floating rate notes, um, and I just want to get your thoughts, maybe dig into that a bit. Um, what are your thoughts on floating rate notes, and how are you positioning them in a multi-sector uh, bond fund? So, yeah, so floating rate notes, and again, people are going to say, well, you're just kind of disingenuous here. So I'm going I'm to tell you a story. I've, I've around 40-something percent of the portfolio floats right now. It's either floating rate notes, bank loans, CLOs, high-quality CLOs, cash. So I know I have all this floating rate which is terrific, it's got a lot of yield. But what I look for, when I look forward to five years and I see demographics and I see the G10 and population decline and a labor force decline, I just don't see great GDP growth, right? Like I don't know much, but that seems like that works. It's gonna be hard to keep these interest rates here. And so somehow I have to term out this 40% bucket and get it at a fixed rate because that's actually the risk reducing trade for my clients. And so the fact that I'm still dragging around 40% shows you I'm still a little worried about inflation, still a little worried about uh, the Fed. Uh, but at some point, I need to move for our clients and so term out and add duration to the portfolio. So I like floaters, comfortable with them right now, but I see a clear and present danger out here. Great. Uh, a question coming in just about, um, you mentioned, you know, talking, we're talking about inflation through this whole thing, but this, do you think the central bank could adjust its target inflation rates? Oh, uh, this is a, a great cocktail conversation. Um, yes, for sure. So remember, we kind of made up the inflation number. So if you go back to Canada, which we're, you know, we're talking to a bunch of great Canadians here, um, and you go back to 1990, and uh, the governor of Bank of Canada is a guy named John Crow. John Crow is, the, I think it's, they call him a monetarist. Someone can push back on me there. But he believed in 0% inflation. 
zero, zero, zero. It was a hard, like, you have to beat inflation down. But then StatsCan came along and said, you know, our surveys aren't that good. <laughs> They're kind of kludgy, kind of, it's a big economy. We don't have a lot of money. Um, and so we think our error term may be one to 2%. So when you're targeting zero, you actually may have deflation going on in the economy, and we can't tell you that's the case. And I don't even mean to pick on StatsCan because that's not fair. Think of the U.S. as the Bureau of Labor Statistics, same thing. No one spends any money on them anyway, and they probably should. But good, good golly, try to get a politician to say, I'm going to spend money on the Bureau of Labor Statistics and not on people. I think they get mad. Um, and so in 1990, we decided on the one to three band. And you know who it was? It was Sheila Koch. Remember from Hamilton? Uh, you know, the old, uh, her, I think her father was mayor and she was a longtime liberal. And I think that we got the, the 2% was kind of like, yeah, there's 2% seems like reasonable. It takes into account statistical error, gives it something to shoot for that's stable, but not too low. And here we are. So we made it up then. So why couldn't we make it up now? So the answer is yes, they could change it, I guess. <laughs> oh, absolutely. absolutely. In fact, you'd have a World Commission. You'd have all sorts of economists from all the great universities in Canada. They'd parade through with all their econometric blah, 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 and say a new number. What would it take? How would that happen, do you think? I mean, they could well, just do it, but... Um, when the price, yeah. of, the price of going from 4% to 2% gets too big, when it becomes too, too hard, mm. when... Governments can't take it. Public can't take it. Uh, the hard part with that, though, the risk you have, right, is if you look what happened to Turkey and they have, what, 80% inflation now and, and things like that, you get you can go from this low inflation where we still are and it's trending down. If you're not careful, you can lead to spirals. So it has to be done well. It has to be done uh, with some thoughtfulness to it. But it's very possible. I just, I wouldn't like make it my base case. I just mm -hmm. like, watch for it in 2023 because politicians won't like this. Um, uh, moving on to GICs, which, you know, I've been writing about working, writing about uh, uh, personal finance and investing for a while. Nobody really wanted to talk about GICs for a long time. Now, again, maybe something maybe different there. What are your thoughts on GICs and how should maybe advisors approach those for a portfolio? You know, I think I look at advisors know their clients way better than I do, and I, I would never call an advisor. I get some by some clients just can't take, they just hate you for it, and so and for those clients, the GIC is a necessary evil. Uh, the way I look at it, time to buy a GIC is a year ago, when you know interest rates are nothing and there's no capital gains. Uh, there's there are scenarios, and again, I can't tell you this is the path for sure. There are scenarios in the marketplace in the next handful of years. It could be very high total returning for the for the fixed income markets. If you look at uh, the portfolio that we ran we ran for clients in 2019 and 20, we returned nine percent plus a year, two years in a row, and and again so outran our coupon. I don't see how we get there yet, so I'm still in floaters. But at some point we kind of get there. And what I think is like anything, if you spend the money in the GIC, you're going to be locked up, and in your client their chance to come back and bounce back goes away. And so I would say when capital gains get close to zero again, that's the time to buy GICs. I don't think in this yield and this spread environment, I would necessarily want to lock up my money. 
Um, you talked a bit about duration throughout our chat here, but maybe let's dig into that a bit more. How do you look at duration going forward? So duration is just interest rate sensitivity. And really it's said another way, it's just rollover risk. So think about this. Remember that, you know, it, it, remember we were just in a, a period a year ago where the 10 year US Treasury was at 1%. Well, nobody cared. The rollover is there. The, how, how long would it take to double 1% yield? Like forever? I don't even know. I, like, and I'm a bond guy. I don't even know. I will tell you this at 7% where the portfolio is today, it doesn't take very long to double. And so this is what duration is. Duration is all about how long can you lock in yields at this high level? Because that interest rate sensitivity is the story. And floaters are great when interest rates are going up because they keep their price. But when interest rates start to fall, floaters are bad because they keep their price, right? And the rest of the portfolio starts generating big capital gains. And so you're going to need duration at some point. You're going to have to take your duration off. And you're going to want to. You're going to want to lock in some of these fairly high rates. And how do you do that? That's where it gets tricky because if you think about it, historically, the stock market, you know, the volatility is like 20% and the volatility of the portfolio I run is like four to six. I'm much less volatile. So in stocks, people have a plan. They have, I average in, I have, I mean, investors have an idea how they add um, stock risk, right? And take it down. They have, they have a plan for that because there's so much ball. If you think about it, money market account with the ball 0.0, you can put all your money in today and take it all out tomorrow and you don't care. It's just the overnight rate. It's one day money. It's not going to matter. The bond market now, because of all this vol, has a little bit more vol. So you need a little bit more of a plan now on how to buy and sell your bonds than you did five years ago. And, and that volatility, I think, here for a while, because the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve, the one thing they like about the bond market's volatility is it takes leverage out of the system, makes the world less risky, and it takes speculation away. And they realize that one of the ways to get rid of speculators is to put volatility in the system. And the speculators, a lot of times, use financial leverage. And so they, they borrow and they always have to mark the market and they're always giving collateral. And it's no fun. And so we could be here in a bit more of a volatile marketplace, more like the 1990s than the last 10 years. And in that world, we still, you're going to want to have a little bit of a plan for how you buy and sell your bonds. I think, you know, averaging in seems like a reasonable idea. Um, but at the same time, at these yields, you can convince me of a lot of things as a client. What about, what about just, you know, as a, a, you know, as a fund manager, what are you doing? What are the strategies that you're employing right now? We're kind of averaging in. So what we have right now is we have, we've left all of our buckets with room to maneuver upside, but we're trying to add in. Having said that, I haven't really added to duration as clients will know, right? I'm just the difference in return versus the bond market. Um, because we've been shorter and that's worked out for clients. I'm going to have to at some point start stepping up and doing big lumps in the bond market in duration. Um, great. We're, uh, we got, just got a, you know, a minute left. Um, I just wanted to get some final thoughts. Uh, you sound, you know, positive on bonds, which again may have been different than a year ago. What are some sort of last pieces of advice for investors or just kind of your thoughts overall on, on the bond market going forward? My number one thing is there's recency bias in everything we do. And, and your clients are going to be facing that. And, and again, that's why they hire advisors. Advisors see through that. The recency bias says, oh, I hate bonds. And I don't think that's where you, you should come out. I don't think you should love bonds either. But I think bonds are just an instrument. 
It's just yield instruments. And there's a lot more to like now in the bond market. And so my instinct is, in your mind, you should be trying to find a way to add more bonds, not take them away. I will leave it there. Uh, looking forward to seeing where the market goes and, uh, and our next chat at some point in the future. Um, but thank you so much for being here. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.